thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. If you go to a library, you'll find thousands of books full of lots of different information about different subject matters. And within those thousands of books, you will hopefully uh, find a Bible as well. You know, most people think that a Bible is just like any other book that's out there on the shelves in a library or in someone's personal library. But something that we need to understand as Christians is that the Bible is very unique. The Bible is very different from any other book that's ever been written. The great preacher D.L. Moody said, the Bible was not given for our information, but for our transformation. And I love that quote because when people look at books, they think, well, it's just full of information that you acquire and learn from. And, you know, but the Bible is more than that. It's more than just information that has been given to us. It's something that actually can transform our lives. You know, there are two main things that make the Bible so unique compared to other books that we have in our world today. And the first is seen in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It tells us this, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You know, the first thing that makes the Bible so unique is that it's completely inspired by God. There's no other book that is in existence today that is completely inspired by God. And that inspiration that God brings, we're told, you know, it helps us in every area of life. It helps us to be equipped and to grow and to know how to live for the Lord. But you know what? The Bible is not just full of God-inspired information that we need to know. It does have that. That is important for us. But it goes beyond that to something even more. Hebrews 4.12 tells us, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You know, the second main thing that makes the Bible so unique is that it's living and powerful. You know, when you have any other book, you know, it's just information. It's just words on a page. But when you come to the living scriptures, you come to the Bible, the word of God reveals that it is alive and powerful. It has the ability to discern the thoughts and intents of your heart. It has the power to divide between soul and spirit. And the reason it can do this is because... It's God's word. He has inspired it to give life to those who will read it. Now, the reason I've started with emphasizing these wonderful truths about God's word and how unique it is is because as we come here to Acts chapter 19, we're going to see the power that God's word has on this town or city of Ephesus. We're going to see how God uses his word mightily to work in the lives of people who receive it. And so, you know, We're going to really be challenged as we look at the wonderful things that the Word of God does. And, you know, as you go through chapter 19 of Acts, there's kind of a a theme verse that I just want to start with and draw your attention to. Acts 19.20, it says, The Word of God grew mightily and prevailed. 
What a wonderful statement to be made. I hope that all of us personally want to say that about our lives, that the word of God grew mightily and prevailed in us and changed us and transformed us. But I hope that it doesn't just stop personally, but that it goes beyond that, that we would want to say the word of God was mighty and prevailed in the city of Pasadena or the surrounding cities or Houston or the world in itself. So as we look at chapter 19 this morning, we're going to look at two reasons why the word of God grew mightily and prevailed there in Ephesus. And we're also going to look at three responses to the word of God, three responses that those in Ephesus had. And as we look at these things, it's really going to be a great challenge to us, challenging us with two ways that, you know, we really need to help the word of God grow mightily and prevail And we're also going to note three ways that we should respond to God's word. And so there's a lot of personal application in uh, this chapter, I think, for us this morning. So let's just start looking at the first reason why the word of God grew so mightily and prevailed there in Ephesus. Acts chapter 19, we left off in verse 8. Let's see what it has to say. And he went into the synagogue, speaking of Paul, and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that both all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Well, Paul continues his normal pattern that we've seen throughout his missionary journeys. He goes into the synagogue, and he's getting to share for three straight months. And this is pretty long for Paul, because his normal pattern is he goes in there, and then he gets Jews that are upset with him and you know try to keep him from doing it. So it's maybe you know a weekend or just a little time. But he's been there for three months, and he's been sharing. But just like we see this pattern, it took a little longer. But now we see Jewish people who are hardened, hardened to the gospel, hardened to the truth of God's word. They don't want to hear what Paul has to say, and and I want you to note now how Paul responds to that, because, you know, he's no longer welcome in the synagogue, that's something that he's used to, but he doesn't just stop teaching, he doesn't just say, well, we'll forget it, you know, you guys don't want me here, he just moves his teaching to another place, he goes from the synagogue to the secular school, the the school of Tyrannus, Uh, and he goes and he just starts meeting in this school, and I want to draw your attention to how often he teaches there, we're told that he reasoned daily. Reason daily in the school of Tyrannus. Every single day, Paul was there, made himself available to teach people the word of God. And he to- we're told he did this for two years, so that all who dwelt in that area heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Every single day, for two years, Paul is taking this opportunity to teach the word of God. Now, I already noted that the word of God is inspired, it's living, it's powerful, It has everything we need to thoroughly equip us for every good work. And because of that, the word of God is always ready to work mightily and prevail in people's lives. But in order for that to happen, something very practical needs to take place, which brings us to the first point I want us to note this morning. The first reason why the word of God grows mightily and prevails is when someone is taught God's word and when they personally study God's word on a regular basis basis. The word of God, it's living, it's powerful, it has the ability to change your life, but only if you're studying it, only if you're being taught it. It doesn't do you any good if you don't open it up. The amazing truths of God's word will only impact your life when you invest in them. 
You know, I think it's interesting the Bible and Scripture is referred to as a sword. And I think about this because a sword that has never been drawn and just stays in its sheath is really useless. It might look cool hanging on your belt there, but the reality is it's useless to you until you pull it out, until you use it. It was made not just to sit there unused. It was made for combat and battle, and you have to draw it for it to have any use for you. In the same way, the Bible, if it just sits closed... It might look good as it's on your coffee table when your guests come along and they say, oh, wow, you got your Bible out. They don't know that you never read it. Maybe it's packed full of dust. But the reality is, you know, it doesn't do you any good unless you read it, unless you dig into it, unless you open it and apply it to your life. So one of the reasons why God's word grew mightily and prevailed in Ephesus is because Paul was faithful every day to teach that word to people who were there in Ephesus. And I want to say to you, if you want God's word to grow mightily and prevail in your life personally, you got to study it. You got to read it. And I would challenge you to do that daily. Make that a part of your daily routine that God's word is something that you always dig into, always put into your mind and heart. And if you do that, God's word, he'll change your life. And you know what? I get so many believers and like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not changing very quickly. And I, I keep going back to these old sinful ways. And, and pastor, you know, how can I grow? And I'm always coming back to, well, what's your time in the word of God like? And always when someone is struggling greatly, oh, I'm not really spending much time or I'm not spending any time in the word of God. It's a, it's a natural consequence. When you're in God's word every day, you're going to grow. And you're going to grow much quicker than if you're just in God's word once a week or once a month. Or you only hear it when you come on a Sunday service. You know, Charles Spurgeon, the great pastor and teacher, said this, Why is it that some Christians, although they may hear sermons, make but slow advances in the divine life, because they neglect their closets, or do not thoughtfully meditate on God's word? They love the wheat, but they do not like to grind it. They would love the corn, but they will not go forth into the fields to gather it. The fruit hangs upon the tree, but they will not pluck it. The water flows at their feet, but they will not stoop down to drink it. From such folly, deliver us, O Lord. You know, what Spurgeon says here is so true about many believers when it comes to the word of God. He's saying, oh, we love the wheat, but we don't want to put the work into grinding it so we can eat that good bread. Oh, we love the corn, but we don't want to put the work into going and gathering it. Oh, we love the fruit, but we don't want to put the work into taking it off the tree. We love the water, but we don't want to take the, you know, the painstaking thing of stooping down and actually drinking from it. And the point that Spurgeon is making here is we love the results of the word of God, but we don't want to take the time to actually study it so that we can have those results. Oh, we want what the God, word of God can do in our life. We just don't want to have to put the work into it for it to happen. And that's the way it works. You know, it's not like you learn from osmosis and just put the word of God on your head and, oh, wow, everything just you know, comes to your knowledge. You have to open it. You have to study it. You have to invest in it. It is a discipline. It does take work. And if you want God's word to grow mightily and prevail in other people's lives... In the city that we live in, you know what? You need to share God's word with them. You need to communicate God's word with them. And you think, you know, I don't feel confident or comfortable with that. Well, at least invite them to church and I'll share God's word with them. But the second thing, that, or the first thing that we see, why God's word grew mightily and prevailed is because someone was taught God's word or they personally studied it on a regular basis. Well, now let's see the second reason why the word of God grew so mightily and prevailed there in Ephesus. Verse 11 says this. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hand of Paul so that even 
handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the disease left them, and the evil spirits went out from them. God's word is a spiritual book. And so not only does God's word need to be taught and studied, but the Holy Spirit needs to be moving in the lives of people. You know, throughout the book of Acts, we see these two things going hand in hand, the teaching of God's word and the powerful supernatural move of the Holy Spirit. And the reason the Holy Spirit moves in these powerful, miraculous ways is really to validate and point people back to God, back to his words, back to the truth of his word. And throughout most of the book of Acts, we've seen the Holy Spirit work in usual ways, the ways that he most commonly works. But notice Luke here says the Holy Spirit is working in some unusual ways, not not the most common ways that he does, some unique ways. And notice what happens. We're told that, you know, Paul, he's a, a tent maker. And as a tent maker, he would wear these sweatbands. It's translated handkerchiefs, but it's more accurately translated sweatbands. And, you know, a lot of you who work outside, you have that. He's got an apron to keep his clothes nice. And at the end of the day, I'm sure he put those things up. And guess what happens? People come and they take them and they steal them. Why? Because they go to the sick and they put these sweatbands on these aprons on the sick or on, on people demon-possessed. And all of a sudden, the sick are healed and the demons are leaving. And so, you know, God's doing this work with, you know, the things that Paul was wearing as he was working. Now, remember, these are unusual miracles. Literally, the phrase means um, not of the ordinary kind. So as believers, we should expect the miracles that the Holy Spirit normally does, but these were the unexpected sort. Well, I want to pose the question, how do these sweatbands, how do these aprons work? We know that they don't have any power in themselves. It's not like, you know, there's power in that sweat or power in that apron. So how is it that they were laid on people and all of a sudden these people are healed? What's going on here? Well, I think in the Gospels, we have a similar event that hopefully gives us some insight into what's transpiring here. If you remember in Mark chapter 5, the woman with the issue of blood comes to Jesus. And I want to read to you what transpires. We're told, now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she became She came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, If only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And he healed her of her affliction. Now notice what this woman says. She has this this issue of blood for all this time, and she says, You know, if I can just touch Jesus' garment, I'll be healed. Now, Jesus didn't have some supernatural garment. You know, he didn't go around glowing in the dark unlike some of the paintings that we see today. You know, his clothes were just normal like everybody else. There wasn't power in the garment. There was power in Jesus himself. But this woman thought, if I can just touch his garment, I'll be healed. You see, the garment was just a a way to exercise her faith. She believed if I just touch the garment, it's going to heal me. And it was this thing that kind of just triggered her faith of, if I can just do that, it will heal me. I think in the same way with Paul's sweatbands and aprons. People, oh, Paul's sweatband just touched me. If I can just have it touch me, I'll be healed. Or if I can just touch his apron, I'll be healed. And it was just this releasing of faith. Because notice at the end, Jesus says, your faith has made you well. Your belief that I could do this made you well. And I think that's probably what we see going on here of, of why these unusual miracles were happening is because people using these different clothing items were kind of exercising their faith that God could heal them. So this is an unusual thing, but I think we need to note that, you know, the Holy Spirit, 
Uh, we shouldn't expect that this is going to be the, the common way that he does things. You know, you get, you know, certain, you know, people in ministry that say, you know, I have this handkerchief and I'll mail it out to you and I blessed it and you'll be healed from it. You know, that's not the way the Holy Spirit regularly works. And so that kind of stuff I wouldn't buy into. But we do have the Holy Spirit on a normal pattern of the things that we see through Scripture that he does. He's always convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He's always giving to believers spiritual gifts, empowering them to do the work. He's giving them gifts to do ministry. He's strengthening us where we need it. He gives us wisdom when we need it. And so this brings us to the second point that I want us to note this morning. The reason why the word of God grows mightily and prevails is when the Holy Spirit powerfully moves in and through people. You know, something I've come to understand, and it took me a little while, it shouldn't have, but it did, as a teacher of God's word, is that for my teaching to impact people's lives, The Holy Spirit not only has to be speaking through me, but he has to be moving in those who listen. You know, it doesn't matter how great or how articulate or how much time I've invested into it. I've come to the realization if the Holy Spirit is not moving, nothing's going to happen. Lives aren't going to be changed. You know, people might say, oh, that was great information, Pastor, or, or oh, I really enjoyed that. But the real question is, are you changed? Has that changed your life? Because if it hasn't, it's all for naught. The purpose of it is for you to be changed, and I can't do that. You can't do that. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And so I recognize the power of the Spirit must be moving for the Word of God to do the work the Word of God is sent to do. You know, the Bible is full of spiritual truths that you can't understand just because you're intellectual. There's a lot of really smart people who are not believers who can't understand the Bible. Why? Because it's full of spiritual truths that you need the Holy Spirit to enlighten you and open your mind to understanding. And so I would challenge you before you start studying the Bible... Just pray a simple prayer. Lord, will you help me understand these truths? Pray that the Holy Spirit would give you insights. You know, God's not trying to keep the Bible hidden from you. It's not like, oh, I've just chosen a few people who are pastors and teachers, and and I'm going to let them know, but everybody else, I'm just going to keep it hidden from them. No, he gave the Word of God to all of us because he wants all of us to know it, to learn it, and to do it. And so just be honest and sincere. Lord, I need your help. I want to know, I want to understand what your word's telling me, and just ask, and I'm confident that he will answer that prayer. And if you want the Lord to do work in other people's lives, you need to ask first and foremost, God, empower me with boldness and the ability to communicate your word to others, but also work in them. Help them to be able to understand and receive and be you know, uh, changed by your word. And You know what, as we see the word of God and uh, connected with miracles, Lord, if you need to do supernatural works to help people understand that you have this power, that you are truly who you claim to be, the Holy Spirit is there to accomplish that as well. Let me just say, and I I hear so many people use this excuse, and, and it's not biblical, you do not have to be a pastor to communicate God's word. I think that's just a common misconception. Every single believer has the capacity to communicate the word of God to others because every single believer has the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. And so don't use that excuse and don't buy into that lie. You can be used by God to communicate God's word to others. You don't have to be the most articulate or the most knowledgeable, but you can still be used from what you know to communicate to others and allow the Holy Spirit to move through you to communicate God's truth to the people that are in your life. So as the people there in Ephesus, they watch the Holy Spirit. It powerfully moves through Paul. Even his sweatband and aprons are not only healing people, but casting out demons, and they're just blown away. But now we're going to see a group of people that are going to try to use this power, but they're not believers. Let's see what happens to them. Verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists 
took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also there were seven sons of Sceva, Jewish chief priests, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This became known both to the Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on all of them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Now at that time there were Jews, not believers in God, but Jewish people, well not believers in Jesus, that you know they were exorcists. They, they thought, you know, we're going to try to cast out demons. And they see how effective Paul is. And they look, wow, look at how you're doing it. So we're going to try to take our cue from you. We're going to try to follow the way that you do it. And so, you know, there's a group of them and they come to this demon-possessed man and they say, we exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Well, this exorcism failed. And the reason it failed is because they didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus. Oh, it's the Jesus that Paul knows. It's, it's Paul's Jesus that we're, we're doing, not my Jesus, not me. I have that personal relationship and power. You know, there are many people, many churchgoers who will perish in hell because they have no personal relationship with Jesus. They only know the Jesus that the pastor preaches or the Jesus that their spouse believes in or the Jesus that their parents follow, but it's not the Jesus that I have personally accepted, the Jesus that is someone that I have a relationship with. The reality is all of us have to accept Jesus for ourselves. Now, notice how the evil spirit answers. I think this is very interesting. It gives us some insight into spiritual warfare. He says, Jesus I know, Paul I know, who are you guys? Now, what I find interesting is he knows Jesus and Paul. He doesn't know these guys, which helps us to understand that it seems like, you know, the demonic spirits, they understand who their real enemy is, who's really coming against them, believers who are able to cast them out, believers who have the power of the Holy Spirit. But these other guys, they don't seem to waste time with them. Who are you? I mean, we don't know you. I mean, you can't do anything to us. And, you know, I would ask the question is, you know what? Are you known in hell? Do demonic spirits know you because you're making such an impact on Satan's kingdom that they go, oh, we know Paul, we know Jesus, we know you because of what the Lord is doing through you. We, we know who this guy is and we, we don't like him because he's bringing people out of our kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and saving them. We're told this man who was demon possessed who says, you know, who are you guys? Notice then he just leaps on them, totally beats them, rips off their clothes because we're told that they run out of there naked and wounded. And so there's seven of them and there's one of him and he's demon possessed and he's probably got some serious strength and he just whoops on these guys and they're thinking, oh, we're going to cast the demon out with, you know, we don't have a relationship with Jesus. We're going to use that. And well, it didn't work for them. Yeah, I think this result here brings some important truths for us. We're in a spiritual battle. I think we all recognize that, but the only way to be victorious in that is if we're relying upon the power of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. Oh, no, no, not the, I cast you out in the the Jesus that Paul believed, and I don't. It doesn't work that way. When you have that personal relationship, the Holy Spirit dwells in you and empowers you against the armies of darkness. That's what enables us to fight. And you know something else? This world that doesn't believe in Jesus They're powerless against Satan. They're powerless against the devil because, hey, 
He's got full power of them. They don't have the one thing that enables them to have power, which is Jesus. And so when we're trying to reach them, we not only need to recognize we need the Holy Spirit to protect us in the spiritual battle, but we need the Holy Spirit to move in them for them to be able to be enlightened and open to the truth of God and his word. The Holy Spirit is essential in that. Well, after this event takes place, we're told it became known to both the Jews and the Greeks dwelling in Ephesus that this demon-possessed guy whooped on these other guys. And fear fell on all of them, and the name of Jesus was magnified. So the two reasons that the word of God grew mightily and prevailed in Ephesus was first, when someone was taught God's word, when they personally studied God's word on a regular basis, and second, when the Holy Spirit powerfully moves in and through people's lives. So those are the first two things I want us to look at, why the word of God moved mightily. Now we're going to look at three responses to this. We see the powerful work and move of God. Now let's see the response of people in Ephesus to this mighty work of God's word. First response is in verse 18. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. So as the word of God is being taught, it's just being proclaimed, you know, and Paul's doing it daily for two years, all of a sudden we see people respond to the teaching of God's word. We're told they come confessing and telling their deeds. You know, something that we need to realize is God's word reveals our sin. It points out where we're erring. It points out what we're doing wrong. And one of the responses that we need to have to that is the exact response that we see here, a confession of that. Lord, I confess I'm a sinner. I confess this particular area. I'm sinning. I'm doing something against your word, your will, your plan. I I confess that to you. I think a question for us is how do you respond when God's word reveals your sin? Because this isn't always the response we give. We don't always come with confession. Oftentimes we come with, oh, let me try to justify. Let me try to explain to you, God, why I did this. It wasn't my fault or whatever. Instead of just, Lord, yes, I admit it. I confess it. I was wrong in doing this. Please forgive me. This brings us to the first positive response we see to God's word. We need to confess the sin that God's word reveals in our life. You know, if you've ever studied revivals throughout history, something that you will come to understand I find very interesting. Almost every single revival through church history started with a group of believers confessing their sin to God and getting right with him. It started first with believers. You always think of revival as all these unbelievers getting saved. Yeah, that's the end result of it, but it almost always starts with believers coming before the Lord, confessing their sin, getting right with God, and it starts first in the church and then spreads out from the church to the unbelievers, and God starts moving. Oh, Lord, we want to see revival. Really? Do we want to get right with him? Oh, no, 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 I don't want to get right with you, God. I just want to see you reach people. Well, we see throughout church history, one of the biggest ways God reaches people is first when the church is willing to get serious about him, get right with him, confess their sin, deal with it first before trying to reach the world and share with them that they need a savior for their sin. You know, I think we're so foolish to not confess because we have one of the most wonderful promises in Scripture. 1 John 1.9 tells us if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I mean, there's not a greater promise. I mean, there's there's wonderful ones in there, but this is such a, a wonderful promise of, hey, if you confess your sin, God is always faithful. There's not going to be a time he says, nope, sorry, not today. I'm busy. Nope, that was too many times. Nope, that's too big. He's always faithful to forgive you and to cleanse you from the unrighteousness that brings into your life. Man, this is a wonderful, wonderful promise. Why don't we take advantage of it 
more often. So the first response we see to the word of God is confession of sin. Let's look at the second response we see in verse 19. It says this, Also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. Ephesus was known for its practice of sorcery and magic and the occult, and it was a big business there because people were caught up in that lifestyle. They all of a sudden hear the gospel and their lives are changed. We're told many of those who practice magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And notice this, and they counted up the value of all these magical books, these books, you know, doing all these enchantments and things, and it counted up to 50 thousand pieces of silver commentators say 50,000 pieces of silver back then is a couple million dollars today these were some valuable books and what did they do with them sell them no they burnt them they got rid of them they didn't want to sell them so that someone else could be bound by the lies and the junk that were in them they said this is evil this is sinful and we are going to get rid of this from our lives and just get rid of this period because we don't want it to impact any other people. And they did this in the presence of everyone. They didn't just go into their own fireplace and toss them. They went out into the middle of the square and everyone saw all these books getting burned. And this was a wonderful witness of the change in these people's lives. First, they confess their sin and then they do something even more important. They repent. Repentance is to turn away, to turn away from those things that are in our life. They are making a choice to say, I am going to get rid of the sinful things that's in my life that's tempting me to sin, and they did it at great financial cost to them. Which brings us to our second response to the word of God. We need to get rid of and destroy any sinful things that we possess. You know, one of the main things that draws people back into a sinful lifestyle you, you get saved and you, know, you get sucked back in. Well, what is it that draws us? Well, there's lots of reasons, but one of them is the sinful things that we don't get rid of. We keep hold of them. Then they're tempting us. They're tempting us to go back and live the life we used to live before we came to know Jesus. And something we need to do is just get rid of those things, to turn away from those things. You know, if you own pornography, destroy it. Delete it off your phone, off your tablet, off your computer. Get rid of it. You keep that there and think, oh, no, I'll be strong enough not to come back. No, get rid of that stuff so it won't be a temptation. You own drugs? Destroy them. Flush them down the toilet. Get rid of the things that will bring you back to that sinful lifestyle. Hey, you know what? You own some music that's satanic or just full of you know, all sorts of swearing and super ungodly things. You, know, well, you don't need to listen to that. Get rid of it. Don't sell it. Don't let someone else get sucked into that. Just burn it. Throw it away. Hey, same thing with movies that are full of sex and all sorts of different things that we as Christians shouldn't be watching. If you got that, why keep it? Why be tempted to go back and look and, and spend your time dwelling on those things? And I'll say this, if you have friends that tempt you to sin, friends of your past life, friends that you, know, you did all sorts of sinful and partying things with, you know what? If you get saved and every time you spend time with them, they just drag you back into that, guess what? Get some new friends. It's time to isolate yourself from them. It's time to say, you know what? I'm not strong enough to be with them. They're dragging me down to sin. You just need to do that to protect yourself and realize this is part of that turning away from sin. That's what we see here with these believers. The reason it's so important to get rid of the sinful things in your life, it's obvious. It tempts you. 
recognize you're weak. <laughs> Whenever you get to a place where, oh, I'll never be tempted by that, that's so foolish. We are all able to be tempted. Our flesh is weak. The spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. So get rid of things that you can. And you know, we can't get rid of every sinful thing because we live in a sinful world, but we do have things that are in our home. We do have things that are in our lives that we can make a choice to rid ourselves of them so they're not regularly uh, tempting us to sin. So as God's word was taught, many people responded by confessing their sin, by destroying that stuff, destroying these demonic books that cost them 50,000 pieces of silver, a couple million dollars. I want you to note something about these people, and I love that, it, that we see this. Following Jesus was worth it to them, even if it cost them greatly financially. And I want to pose that question to you. Is following Jesus worth it where it will cost you losing some of these things that you value? It might not be a financial value, but it's a pleasure value. You like it. It's tempting to you. You want to hold on to it. You want to keep it. You're not willing to release it. Are you willing to say, you know what? Following Jesus is worth it, and I'm going to get rid of this stuff because it hinders me from following Jesus. These people were willing to say, I'm going to get rid of things that are very valuable so that Jesus can be the priority in my life. And now we get back to this theme verse, of verse 20. The result is, and the word of God grew mightily and prevailed. As God's word was taught, as it was studied, as the Holy Spirit was moving in people's lives, as people were confessing their sins and turning away from their sins and getting rid of sinful things in their life, we see the word of God now moved mightily and prevailed in the lives of the people there. Well, this is a great start. But as we always see, not everyone responds in a positive way. Our final response here is a negative one, and I want us to note it because it's a very common response to the Word of God. Verse 21. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who he ministered with, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. So God's worked this great work in accomplishing these things, and Paul now has this plan. Hey, you know what? I got these places that I have on my heart that I want to go to. I want to go to Macedonia, Achaia, Jerusalem, to Rome, but... I don't believe it's time for me to start traveling yet. I still think uh, God wants me to stay here. And so I'm going to send two of my people that are ministering with me, Timothy and Erastus, and they're going to go ahead of me. They're going to go off to Macedonia and minister, and I'm going to stay here for a little longer. Well, now we get to see the, the negative response here to God's word and what's going on. Verse 23. And about that time, there arose a great commission about the way, or commotion, sorry, about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, bought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipped. 
Now, as I already mentioned at the beginning, Ephesus had a huge problem with idolatry, with sorcery, with witchcraft. And we see here that, you know, the practicing of magic and idolatry was big business in this city. Ephesus actually had a huge temple to the goddess Diana. Here are the, the ruins today. If you go to Ephesus, you can see the ruins. But this temple was amazing. It's actually one of the seven wonders of the world. Uh, here's an artist's rendition of what the temple would have looked like back then. And people, you know, they start responding to the word of God. They start responding to the gospel and they start changing. These people who worshiped Diana, who people who came to this temple are no longer doing that. These people who bought idols, they're, they're no longer doing that. They're now worshiping God. They recognize there's only one God and idolatry is wrong. And so the word of God is impacting so many people in a positive way that those who are making idols, and that's their living, they, they're silversmiths, they make these idols, they sell them to people, they're starting to lose a lot of business because their clientele is shrinking. Well, a man by the name of Demetrius specifically is very upset. He's a silversmith. He makes these shrines of the goddess Diana. He sells them. And so he gets his silversmith buddies together. And, and notice what he says to them. This Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Demetrius is upset. He's losing money. And he wants to commit to these other silversmiths, hey, what Paul's doing, the word of God, the spread of the word of God in the gospel is bad news. And he gives two reasons why these guys should be upset, just like he's upset. First, he focuses on the danger that Paul brings to their trade, to their income. He focuses on their pocketbook. Hey, guys, if this continues, our trade, man, we're not going to have it anymore. People aren't going to buy idols anymore. If Paul continues to, and the word of God continues to impact people like it has been, man, there's going to be nobody here. We're going to go out of business. So that's the first thing he uses to kind of draw them in. And second, he focuses on the danger that Paul brings to the goddess Diana. Paul's message is causing people to despise and destroy the goddess Diana that we worship. Now, what Demetrius was saying is true. The gospel and the word of God definitely changed people's lives. Yeah, they don't want to buy idols anymore. Yeah, they're not going to worship Diana anymore. He understood the ramifications of the changed lives that he was seeing. But I want you to know, Paul was not on a campaign to close down the temple of Diana. He wasn't on a campaign to shut down idol-worshiping business. He was on a campaign to proclaim the gospel. And proclaiming the gospel, the result of that was that this stuff happened. I think as believers, sometimes we get it backwards. We get on these campaigns for different things. And the bottom line is, if we really want to see a sinful world changed, the gospel needs to go out. If we want to see a sinful world changed, the word of God needs to go out. That's what changes lives so that then... The response of that is people are no longer engaging in the simple things that they had. You look at revivals, you see all these bars and, and nightclubs and everything shutting down. Why? Because people aren't going anywhere anymore. Why? Because we picketed in front of the, you know, the nightclub and said, don't go here. No, we shared the gospel and people changed and they said, I'm not going to engage in that anymore. I'm not going to go down that road anymore. And that was the result of it. Charles Spurgeon says this, he lived in London, if you didn't know. I wish the gospel would affect the trade of London. I wish it might. There are some trades that need affecting, need to be cut a little shorter. Not by an act of parliament. Let's, acts of parliament leave us alone. We can fight that battle alone. But may it come to an end by the spread of the gospel. I have no faith in any reformation that does not come through men's hearts being changed. You know, in our country, there are many sinful practices that we want to see stopped. 
As a church, the most effective way we can see that happen is to get out and proclaim the gospel, get out and proclaim the word of God and watch lives changed. So Demetrius very cleverly tries to get people against Paul by saying, hey, you're going to lose your income and you're going to lose your worship of Diana. And now let's see how they respond to Demetrius' claims. Verse 28. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seen Gaius uh, and Aristus. Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people, But when they found out he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So this group hears Demetrius' accusations, which were truthful, and they get all upset. We're told that, man, they're full of wrath, and they're saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. How dare anyone try to do anything that would compromise the worship of Diana. And as this is going on, the city is full of confusion. And they all start rushing to this theater that was located there, and they're filling it up, and they seize two of Paul's travel companions. And when Paul sees this, he wants to go into the theater. I need to go and speak to these people. I need to go do something. And the disciples and the leaders who were friends of Paul from the cities, they say, no, 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 Paul, do not go in there. They're fearful that something really bad is going to happen to Paul if he goes into that theater. So they, they stop him there. But notice we're told, that those who came into the theater, they cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused. And most of them didn't know why they came together. You know, I find so interesting the mob mentality. I mean, here you got people, oh, they're crying out one thing, some are crying out another. All these people are coming into the theater and they're like, why are we here? I don't know, but everyone's here, so let's just go. I mean, this mindset of the mob mentality is so often foolish, but many of us, you know, get sucked into it. You know, I read something I found humorous. There was a man on a trip to the country who drove his car into a ditch. And fortunately for him, a farmer found him and he came over and, and had a, a horse named uh, Buddy. And he hooked up Buddy to the car. And the farmer uh, says, pull, Nelly, pull. And the car doesn't pull. Farmer yells, pull, Daisy, pull. Car, horse doesn't pull. Finally, the farmer yells, pull, Coco, pull. Car still doesn't move. Then the farmer nonchalantly says, pull, Buddy, pull. And Buddy easily pulls the car out of the ditch. This guy's looking at this saying, you know, why did you call your horse three names instead of his actual name? And he says, oh, Buddy's blind, and if he thought he was doing this by himself, he would have never even tried. <laughs> the reality is so often, you know, we get sucked into, oh, I'm only going to do it if I see a big group of people doing it. That mob mentality of, oh, if a lot of people do it, then I guess it's good. I guess it's right. I should go do it. But we need to realize that, you know what, oftentimes the mob is wrong, uh, and the crowd is wrong. Well, in this crowd, the Jews get Alexander to come up. He motions with his hand, hey, I want to speak. And the crowd finds out he's Jewish. And then we're told they do something really annoying. For two hours, I mean, imagine this, two hours they start shouting, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Wait, I want to talk. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Hold on. Great is And for two hours, they're just chanting this over and over and over 
Well, let's see what happens next. Verse 35. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do, not, do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore... If Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open to their proconsul. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called into question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So two hours go by. People just keep shouting over and over, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! And finally, the head of the city gets into this crowd, and he has some things to tell them. He's worried about what this commotion is going to do. He says, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, basically shut up. And don't do anything rash. You know, yeah, we've heard you for two hours. Everybody knows that we have the Temple of Diana here. You guys don't need to keep shouting this. Just be quiet and also don't do anything rashly. Because he realizes, you know what, they're all emotional and they might do something to someone that could cause problems. Because in Rome in that day, to do something like this, Romans looking, hey, what's going on here? And if they do something like this, Rome could come and bring some discipline to that city for them getting out of order uh, and not doing things legally. So he goes on to say, For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of the temple nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius, the guy who started all this, and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. If they got a real case, bring it to the courts. Don't stand here in the theater shouting all day long. And then he says, And if any of you have an inquiry to make, do it with a lawful assembly, because this is definitely not. We are in danger of being called into question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may be able to give to account for this disorderly gathering. So he shares all this stuff. He shares the problems that could come, and everyone just disperses. Just like the mob gathered together not knowing, now they all just leave together, and nothing happens to Paul, which is great. Uh, And verse 1 of chapter 20 kind of says something that is important to note as well. And the uproar had, after the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. So the crowd listens to the leader, doesn't do anything to those who were in the theater, doesn't do anything to Paul. And Paul, once he sees this all subside, now he starts his journey to Macedonia as well. So the negative response from Demetrius in this crowd to God's word, growing mightily, is important for us to know because, unfortunately, this is very common in the world that we live in today. A response of opposition and persecution to the word of God is very normal. Which brings us to the third response to God's word, and this is looking at it from our perspective. We need to be prepared for and praying against the opposition that will come against God's word and those who teach it. You know, when you're personally spending time with the Lord, understand something. The enemy is going to come and attack that. He wants to destroy that. He wants to keep you from growing. So don't be surprised by that. Expect it. Expect the opposition and be praying for the Lord to help you in that. 
And when you're trying to reach others with the word of God, understand the enemy is going to do everything he can to stop you from that as well. Stop you, make you, make you fearful you know, so you won't do it. Or even when you're starting to do it, he's going to start impacting them to try to distract them and keep them from receiving what you're sharing. And so we need the Holy Spirit. We need prayer. We need to ask the Lord to move in power because this is a reality for us. You know, when we're seeking to reach people with the gospel, seeking people to reach people with the word of God, we are going to have attacks, not only from the enemy of Satan, but the enemy of the world. You know, a great pastor and commentator, A.T. Pearson said, this chapter teaches us all a permanent lesson that when disciples have a true revival Society gets a revolution. When the Spirit moves mightily upon the children of God, we may look for another mighty movement among unbelievers and need not be surprised that the devil himself comes down having great wrath as though he knew his time were short. You know, I do believe that we're living in the last days. I do believe that the enemy knows his time is short as well. Uh, And we need to be those believers who are getting the word of God out to this culture, getting the gospel out to this world. So we've seen in these verses two reasons why the word of God grows mightily and prevails. First, when someone is taught God's word or when they personally study God's word on a regular basis. Second, when the Holy Spirit powerfully moves in and through people's lives. And the three responses, first, confession. Second, to destroy the sinful things in our life. And third, to be prepared and praying against the opposition that comes. You know, our country is in desperate need of God's word in desperate need of the gospel. Today, you know, we take time to remember one of the greatest terrorist attacks on our nation's soil, September 11th. You know, and it just brings to mind, I mean, the, the group that's coming has this religious ideology that's completely against Christianity. And we need to realize that you know, there is a demonic attack against believers. There's a desire for Satan to destroy the world, to bring people under uh, his you know, belief systems that are everything that is opposed to Jesus and the Bible and the gospel. And I just want to close this morning taking some time just to pray for our country. Country. You know, I mean, there's the reality of, you know, the political side and, you know, the terror side and everything. But at the end of the day, what really needs to happen if we're going to see any type of real significant change is the gospel needs to go forth. The word of God needs to transform lives. And we as the church are the ones called to do it. And so let's pray that the Lord would enable us to make an impact on this world that, you know, we often say, you know, let America come back to God. So much of America has never come to him to begin with. It's not coming back. We just need to come to him. Uh, And so that's not going to happen until the gospel goes forth and people recognize what they're coming to. And so let's just pray. I just want to lift up our nation. You know, it's we need God. Uh, And so whatever's on your heart, uh, let's just take some time to lift up uh, just our country and that God would move and that people's lives would be changed and I'll close this in prayer.